Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 120, More Than a Woman. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. I think I've got uh, what will be a really enjoyable interview lined up for you today with a guest who will be joining me to discuss a topic that I haven't addressed on the show for a couple of years. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I did address it and, and uh, across several episodes and several interview guests. Uh, I'm not going to give anything more away. You'll learn about it as I introduce my guest uh, in a few minutes. Uh, I know that the episodes are still coming out few and far between. I hope one day that will change. Uh, but the reality is I have a lot of factors right now that are contributing to the um, disparate uh, – you know, the, the spaced out episodes, not the least of which is that I'm, as you know, continuing to um, seek a uh, bachelor's in religion at Liberty University. That's going very well. I, I've been taking full-time classes, uh, four courses every term, uh, and maintaining a 4.0 grade point average, hoping to graduate in a couple of years summa cum laude. Uh, I've also been taking Greek in person at a college near me, um, not just Koine Greek, but Attic Greek, which is uh, the you know more ancient classical Greek whence um, Koine originated, and have been keeping up a 4.0 in those classes as well. The second semester just ended, or yeah, the last class was just a few days ago. Um, and then uh, I'll start Hebrew in the fall, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, in addition to education, I've got ministry um, at uh, my church. I'm, do- I'm involved. I'm involved at Rethinking Hell, which I have a word to say, uh, a, a word or two to say about in a moment. Um, and for those of you who might remember that I worked at Microsoft several months ago but was laid off, uh, the new job that God has blessed me with is just fantastic. Um, I absolutely love it. Far less stressful than it was at Microsoft and far more fulfilling. Uh, I'm actually doing work that is contributing to the improvement of people's health and lives, even the saving of their lives, um, which gives me something to uh, get out of bed in the morning for. So things are going great, but they're also incredibly busy, uh, and I've only just sort of scratched the surface on, on what is keeping me um, busy. Uh, and, and so that's why the episodes are coming out few and far between. But hopefully as time goes on and as I allow other things to fall off my plate here and there, um, I'll be able to do this a little bit more often. I mentioned a moment ago that I've got a couple of things I want to say about Rethinking Hell. I won't make a big deal out of this. I know that some of you who listen to the show uh, don't appreciate my work there or, or, or don't appreciate the topic, and, and I understand that. Um, but there are a couple of things, that, uh, a couple of announcements I recently made in an episode at Rethinking Hell that I'd like to repeat here for those of you who don't listen. Uh, first of all, I've got a second book now um, that's going to be coming out later this year. You, you might recall that I published uh, with a couple of friends and colleagues at Rethinking Hell. I published a, a book last year called Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism through uh, an imprint of Whipfin Stock called Cascade Books. Uh, another imprint of Whipfin Stock called Pickwick Publications, which is more academic, uh, they have, uh, they're, they'll be publishing our second book um, later this year, which is called A Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge. It's a festschrift, um, 
in honor of Edward Fudge on the occasion of his 70th birthday, which we celebrated last year at the inaugural Rethinking Hell conference at the Linear Theological Library. Um, so uh, this second book contains 11 of the 14 papers that were presented at that conference and 11 new papers that were contributed by people who uh, would have loved to have presented uh, but were unable to. Uh, so you can expect that in a few months. I, I think it's great, um, and, and I'm hoping that it blesses Edward, um, you know, whom I'm a big fan of and, and very fond of. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, speaking of Rethinking Hell conferences, is that in just a month from now, and slightly under a month, in fact, we are having our second Rethinking, Rethinking Hell conference, uh, June 18th through 20th at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Um, the topic is going to be conditional immortality and the challenge of universal salvation. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people that you'd love to, um, to see speak there if you find yourself anywhere near the Pasadena area in a month from now or can get yourself down there. Uh, plenary speakers include Oliver Crisp and Jerry Walls, who will be representing uh, the traditional view of hell as well as Robin Perry, who will be representing a universalist view of hell. And then uh, David Instone Brewer, Jim Spiegel, and myself will be plenary speakers representing conditional immortality. And then we've got a ton of breakout speakers from all three sides of this debate. Um, it's going to be an opportunity for us to uh, rigorously and vigorously debate this topic, but in a spirit of um, respect and love and kindness uh, something that often doesn't happen when evangelicals discuss this topic, which is unfortunate. So if you want to learn more about the conference, go to RethinkingHellConference.com, just as it sounds, no punctuation or dashes or anything like that. Um, registration is still open, and there's plenty of seats available, and I think that you'll um, really be edified uh, if, if you're able to make it down there. Um, and I would love to meet you. So that's it. I won't say anything more. Let's go ahead and uh, play the promo that's next up in my lineup, which is for Matt Slick's Calm Radio. There is a God. You are not him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the Day of Judgment. I still need to update the uh, the promo that I created for Matt's show um, back when I first created it. The show was called Faith and Reason. Uh, and then for a while, I think it was just called Calm Radio. Now it's called Matt Slick Live. Whatever it's called, however, and, and whenever it is that I can get around to updating the promo, it's, it's, uh, it's a show that I recommend and a ministry that I appreciate. Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, otherwise known as CARM, founded by Matt Slick, is, is a useful resource, I think, for uh, people that um, are sort of just getting their toes wet in the world of apologetics. It's helped me a lot um, in some of the dialogues that I've had with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and, uh, and various other people as well. And although Matt Slick can some can be a little bit obstreperous, as, as he has sometimes said, uh, maybe abrasive might be another way of putting it. Um, he's passionate about God's word, and he really wants to um, to edify his listeners and the people that visit his site. I think that he's got a big heart, even if he's also got a big um, a big passion. Um, so, if you want to listen to Carm Radio or, or or Matt Slick Live, you can do so if you're anywhere near Boise, Idaho. Um, it airs on KBXL FM ninety four point one. 
from 3 to 4 p.m. Mountain Time, which is 2 to 3 p.m. Pacific Time, I believe. Um, and it also is rebroadcast from 5 to 6 Mountain Time on AM 790 uh, every, every weekday, Monday through Friday. It's a call-in radio show, so uh, at the beginning of every show, Matt will give you the phone number so you can call in and ask him a question or maybe challenge him, as I've tried to do here and there. Um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend that you listen. And, and if you can't listen live, the, the show is um, rebroadcast in podcast form um, a few days behind. You know, So uh, the, the live shows um, are published in the podcast about five days later or something like that. Uh, you can find everything about CARM Radio, Matt Slick Live, at CARM. Org. That's C-A-R-M dot org. Once again, it stands for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. CARM.org slash radio. Uh, and just go to CARM.org as well um, to, uh, to check out the various resources that CARM makes available. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. Welcome to another The Apologetics interview, this time returning to a topic that I covered in a series of interviews back in 2011 and 2012. Uh, In May of that first year, 2011, I was a firm complementarian, believing that the role of authority and leadership in the home and in the church was designed by God to be for men and for men alone. Uh, And so I interviewed Matt Slick from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, who shared my perspective. Nearly a year later, I began discovering that I had a very limited understanding of the debate between complementarians on the one hand and on the other hand, egalitarians, who believe that both men and women can be authoritative leaders in the church and that they have equal authority in the home. And so I invited egalitarian Philip Payne on the show for a two-part interview in May of 2012. And then a few months later, I wanted to get a scholarly complementarian response uh, to Payne's case. So I interviewed Jim Hamilton in August of 2012. And then finally in October, I had Payne back on a second time to respond to Hamilton. And when all was said and done, <laughs> when, when all the proverbial smoke had cleared, I found myself on the fence, not confident in the case offered by proponents of either view. It's now two and a half years later, uh, and I'm still on the fence. And I recently discovered that a conservative reformed theologian whom I've had on my show a couple of times before to discuss different issues is now defending an egalitarian perspective. I'd had him on in episode 36 to discuss the doctrine of inerrancy, and I'd had him on again in episodes 83 and 84 to debate the doctrine of baptism. And then at some point, uh, my guest fell off my radar, but then a friend recently told me he was reading a defense of female deacons and asked if I was familiar with the defense's author – Uh, And when I discovered the change of mind this theologian had undergone, I knew I just had to have him on the show uh, if if he'd have me to help me once again navigate this terrain as as I try to move toward one side of the fence or the other instead of just sort of sitting atop the fence indefinitely. And so my guest today is Jamin Hubner, an American theologian and author from South Dakota. He's a graduate of Dort College with a BA in theology, Reformed Theological Seminary with an MA in religion and the University of South Africa with a THD in systematic theology. He currently serves as the uh, Director of Institutional Effectiveness and Founding Chair of Christian Studies at John Witherspoon College in the Black Hills. Dr. Hubner is also an accomplished jazz percussionist and with his wife Jessica enjoys outdoor life, reading, tea, and running their small businesses. His areas of interest include bibliology, science and technology, feminist theology and gender studies, libertarian theory, and economics. 
Jamin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. So, Jamin, last you were on the show, it was April of 2012. Can you catch us up a little bit and tell us what you've been up to in the past three years, apart from the issue we're discussing today, that is? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, let me just preface our conversation uh, with a, a brief disclaimer that uh, in this interview, uh, I'm not representing anyone or anything but myself, of course. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of any institution, church, organization, business, or other entity. I'm only representing myself and uh, my views as an independent scholar. Uh, to your question, I guess I've been doing all kinds of things. Uh, I've been working uh, with a wonderful group of people to establish a new Christian college in this uh, five-state region. And uh, that involves uh, my work as an administrator uh, for accreditation and policy development. And then uh, as a faculty, I teach uh, courses in Greek theology and biblical studies, uh, where I serve as the, uh, the chair of Christian studies. So that's kind of more or less my job. And uh, I continue to do independent research in a variety of fields. But in the last few years, I've also uh, purchased a house with my uh, wife, uh, Jessica, and continue to do a remodeling projects, uh, the, the never-ending, uh, you know, how that goes, especially <laughs> mm-hmm. when it's a, a house built uh, during World War II. And, and so, yeah. uh, you know, we run a, a bed and breakfast business out of our basement and uh, do a little photography and, you know, just enjoy gardening and uh, the beautiful area which we live, uh, hiking, rock climbing, and just trying to live a, a life of peace and productivity and, and godliness and uh, develop uh, good good relationships. Very cool. One of the things that it doesn't seem that you're doing any longer amidst all those numerous things that you are doing is uh, podcasting at realapologetics.org. I I first discovered you through that podcast, and for a while uh, I was playing promos for it and everything, but at some point it disappeared. Can you tell me what happened to that, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, Sure, and uh, you're not the first to ask me uh, this question. Uh, Realapologetics.org was a, a Christian evangelical apologetics website. Uh, that uh, I ran probably uh, between two to three years or something like that, and for various reasons decided that, uh, despite having good material and uh, some enjoyment from the interaction it brought, uh, wasn't really necessary. Uh, Some of those reasons include uh, the existence of other similar resources, time commitments, uh, divided research interests, and, uh, you know, just just realizing there's so much information and noise in the world, it's it's just kind of overwhelming. Mm. And after doing a you know seminary and a doctoral degree and publishing books, I've I've just really learned how hard it is to find good material, uh, and and books worth reading because there's just so much to swim through. Mm. And uh, you know that's only been true for a couple hundred years. Uh, you know, with the invention of the printing press and pro- proliferation of reading materials through universities and library projects, but ultimately the digital age and the internet has just uh, changed uh, so much. So uh, even though I think a lot of my stuff was, you know, decent and worth reading, uh, I just struggled with whether it was, uh, you know, originally good enough to have as opposed to, you know, just creating another bunch of text that uh, generations of people have to sort through. So, hmm. I, I, you know, finding good material is, I think, way more difficult than, uh, than most people realize. But uh, honestly, Chris, one of the biggest reasons uh, for shutting down the site was, you know, my own lack of knowledge in the topics I was addressing. Hmm. And uh, just the need to spend years in study before uh, even attempting to really, you know, publicly defend such things. And this wasn't because of what people had said. It was, uh, you know, more because of experiencing uh, just more years of learning and trying to uh, somehow remain teachable. Because otherwise, you know, I can't learn anything. Mm. Uh, Being a theologian in and of itself is challenging. Uh, People kind of forget how absurd it is uh, for the finite to try and understand the infinite and... uh, 
you know, and then whatever can be known to communicate it to other people. And being a theologian in your 20s is even more <laughs> challenging than that. And then adding a worthwhile apologetic agenda on top of that, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of impossible. So yeah. I just began to realize that, uh, you know, to maintain the side as I had structured it, I just, I found myself making a lot of serious intellectual shortcuts in mm. the process. It was really costing me. Instead of developing my theology on the basis of sound research and uh, critical thinking and challenging my own preferences, which is really uncomfortable, uh, I just kind of went along with the beliefs and confessions of uh, constituencies and groups that I was personally comfortable with. Yeah. I went along with what appeared to be, in my eyes, you know, a, a rep respectable representation of Christianity and theological truth and kind of let the big names and experts do the heavy lifting and follow in their wake. And, you know, maybe that works for some people. Uh, but for me, I just, you know, it's, it's often a bad position to be in because, you know, you just don't kind of know what you believe and why. And you're at the mercy of other people's traditions and, and cultures. Mm. So... And, and, you know, it, I just didn't like what it was doing to me personally, too. You know, when you have an audience to please, and the audience <laughs> wants to know what's right from wrong, and you have to find material to critique, and regularly. And, and you know you know about this to some degree as well, that blogging and podcasting only works if it's regular. Mm. And so I just had to do a reality check, and when I found myself spending most of my time criticizing other Christians, uh, that's not really what I envisioned, and, uh, but that's how it kind of developed. And so, you know, that whole attitude and mindset of, uh, you know, I'm right, and, it, and it's my job to kind of refute everyone else who disagrees with me, that, that carries over into your marriage and your friendships and in church and elsewhere, and it just becomes very difficult to uh, to be corrected, and you just kind of become disconnected. So I, I didn't want to be, you know, like a pseudo-intellectual that doesn't know much of anything, and, but, <laughs> you know, that's confident enough to argue about all of it at the same time, so... It's just kind of a dangerous place to be, and I think a lot of uh, apologetics organizations uh, struggle with this. So, mm. so long story short, I you know there's a lot of reasons for pulling the site, and I've retained some of the material that might show up someday. But uh, yeah, my my own ideals of pursuing truth and um, theology and Christian ministry just eventually kind of uh, collided with how things actually developed. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I do like intellectual shortcuts, and I'm not teachable, and that's why I continue to do this show. Uh, but uh, you know, in all in all seriousness, for those of us who are, are fans of what you've done and, and and what you do, is there is there any other way now that Real Apologetics is no longer uh, available? Is there any other way we can follow your work? Well, you know, I continue to publish written materials uh, like books and articles for for various uh, publications, so people can look those up. Uh, my Amazon author page might be helpful there. I've also started blogging a little bit for the uh, CBE Scroll, uh, so there's um, some popular audience material on on gender and Christianity there. Otherwise, you know, people can find me through Google Plus and LinkedIn, but uh, I currently don't have a, a personal website. I might put one up in the future just for convenience and consolidating <laughs> material, but yeah. All right. Well, in the meantime, I'll include notes to the author page that you mentioned, and um, and hopefully people can you know figure out how to follow you from there. Let, let's begin to talk about the topic that I invited you to discuss with me today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background when it comes to this topic? What have you historically believed, up at least until the past few years, about women in ministry? And 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 was there a point at which you began to wonder if maybe you needed to study things more carefully? Sure. Uh, well, well, I guess I, I always kind of had a personal interest in gender, in the broad sense of what it means to be a man or a woman. And I just kind of tend to be attracted to those areas of life that seem so easy to understand, and they seem so obvious. But when you try to actually describe them, it's like impossible. Mm. You know, so if you ask a person, 
do you know the difference between a man and a woman? And of course, they'll probably say, well, yeah, of course. Uh, but when you go on to ask, okay, tell me, uh, you know, what are these differences or similarities? And, you know, beyond like chromosomes, you start to get a really big range of answers. So I just think that's interesting. Now, of course, that's a much broader topic than, you know, women in leadership positions in Christian churches. But it is something I've always had an interest in and eventually uh, research and life's experiences provided opportunities to study this further. And uh, that, you know, like subcategories like women in ministry. So mm. as far as uh, my historical position on that issue goes, I've always been uh, skeptical of women pastors and teachers uh, of theology, largely because I had never met any. <laughs> uh, being raised in a you know, fundamentalist conservative American evangelical home, actually hearing a woman preach in a church would be like going to the zoo, uh, you know. <laughs> and what I did hear about women pastors from people around me wasn't positive. Right. Uh, what I gathered was that most were heretics or bad teachers. They're just trying to you know, stir up trouble. And Now, this is, uh, of course, be before I put two and two together and realized that women were forbidden or at least strongly decouraged uh, discouraged uh, from attending conservative seminaries. So they're basically forced to go to, you know, so-called liberal or progressive institutions. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to criticize uh, women pastors and teachers in general for not upholding conservative standards. Uh, you know, they're, they're not trained to. Uh, daughters in evangelical families are practically raised with the idea that if they, they go on to teach theology somewhere, they're just going to somehow screw everything up. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why, you know, people are surprised when some Christian women actually fulfill that narrative. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, eventually encountered some good material from the other side uh, during college. Uh, Rebecca Grotice, uh, or Grotice was, was one in particular, but I was still unconvinced. Uh, it did get me thinking, however, and that was good, and I went on to read some, you know, complementarian uh, works in response, and some of it seemed to make sense, but I still had a lot of questions. Uh, so then I went on to be a student at Bethel Seminary, and at one point uh, there, I was assigned to do a debate with a classmate uh, for a critical thinking class. And it was a great class, and um, we chose uh, the women in ministry as the topic. And the tricky thing was we didn't get to decide what we would argue. <laughs> mm. So we, we literally flipped a coin, and the coin was flipped, and I would have to make an argument against women pastors. And so this was a really good chance to kind of get my hands dirty uh, with some of the debates and, you know, potentially solidify my default position. And that's sort of what I did. And I think by anyone's standards, I probably won this uh, particular written debate. Uh, but even so, you know, something didn't really sit right with me because I began to realize that my argument just wasn't, wasn't quite as sound as I thought. At the time... <clears throat> You know, my, my perspective on systematic theology and biblical argumentation was, was very simplistic. It was basically the same approach as Wayne Grudem and a lot of contemporary evangelicals, which views theology as where a person essentially extracts all the propositional assertions from the 66-book Protestant canon and assembles these facts and assertions and logical statements and ideas and categories. Now, I, I have since realized that this is, this is just not how good theology works, and there's you know, plenty of books from a variety of uh, theological flavors that point this out. It's just not how the Bible works and how knowledge of God works, and it's a, a very modern and problematic way of thinking. Hmm. But in any case, uh, what that, that meant uh, for me 
and for the evangelical subculture I was participating in, I was you know finding verses in the Bible that appeared to directly support my position, regardless <laughs> yeah. of you know what the context was. Uh, you know that's that's what really mattered most, and so my argument against women pastors was very simple. I just wielded 1 Timothy 2.12 against my classmate until he cried for mercy. So that was, <laughs> you know, that, was that. And uh, now other arguments could be made, and, you know, from, you know, like the, the trends of male leaders in both Testaments, or arguments from so-called headship and things like that, but they're, they're more indirect and contingent. And, and other arguments from theology and philosophy could be made. But, uh, you know, again, in the modern, you know, American evangelical sphere, I was uh, partaking in. The one who wields the raw text of Scripture wins the day, so that's just how that developed. But as I thought more about this intramural debate at seminary in the next year, I realized there were some serious problems. I I first came to realize that I actually didn't know what Paul was saying. (laughs) I felt confident enough to say, well, this seems to be sufficient to forbid women pastors. But frankly, I don't know what exactly the prohibition is, Hmm. because it was clear enough that Paul was not saying, I forbid women from being pastors. But you could try and deduce that conclusion, and that's where things got really hairy. I had, you know, I I had placed so much uh, weight on this single verse, so any variability was naturally destabilizing. So uh, I realized my argument just wasn't fair, because how could I say on the one hand, well, this verse can be used to prohibit half the global church from being pastors, but say, on the other hand, I really don't know what Paul was forbidding. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people might have been satisfied with that argument, and a lot of Christians still are, but it certainly wasn't good enough for me. So, curiosity kind of got the best of me. I uh, started studying things more further, and to my dismay, I realized that complementarians and others who use this text to forbid women pastors also didn't have a clue as to what Paul was forbidding either. Uh, the more I read, the more I realized the so-called, uh, you know, complementarian interpretation of 1 Timothy 2.12 didn't exist. Hmm. Uh, in the uh, publication uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, for example, I found three to four different interpretations of the verse in the same volume. Hmm. Some of the authors would change their interpretations in the same essay. And this was uh, just really interesting to me. Uh, and so I studied it for a couple years and eventually found no less than eight different interpretations of just verse 12 wow. by those who forbid women pastors. I actually gave a, uh, a presentation on this at Luther Seminary in St. Paul last month uh, for the Society of Biblical Literature, and I, I hope to get it published. But in any case, you know, you might be wondering, and some people listening might wonder, well, well why is this significant? I mean, who cares whether there's disagreement? There's always disagreement. Just because people disagree doesn't mean we should throw our hands up and just give up. Well, it's significant because I was told that there really wasn't disagreement. Those Hmm, same authors argue that not only was the verse clear in its meaning, but it's actually the clearest passage in the entire Bible regarding women in ministry. Right. And at this point, I realize that there is a huge, huge double standard of hermeneutics going on. If this was any other passage people would say, yes, this is a very difficult, challenging text. It has an unusual number of obscure terms. Taking it at face value makes no sense. You know, women being saved from childbirth and all this stuff. We need to be very cautious about building any kind of doctrine from this, especially a large-scale prohibition. You know, that's what we would hear. And in fact, that's what we do hear by a lot of people in New Testament scholarship, except for complementarians. So instead of that... Because this verse is the primary means by which women are kept from pastoral ministry, 
we hear that small group of people saying, oh, yes, this is absolutely clear in its meaning. Let's get right to it and using it to develop church policies and higher education and, you know, ban half the global church from preaching the gospel in front of their own congregations. So to me, at the very least, this just didn't seem reasonable. And that was a hard pill for me to swallow, Mm. but I did. So anyway, all this kind of exegetical stuff made me more curious. And so I began to uh, question the complementary narrative as a whole, because I was clearly being lied to about how clear the text was and how easily, you know, we should develop large-scale prohibitions from it. And so, you know, there's a lot of other things I don't have the uh, time to talk about, too. But uh, so if I was being, uh, you know, had on this issue, maybe that's not the end. And uh, so that's when things really unfolded. Yeah. And a lot of the narratives turned out to be false. You know, I, I found out that, you know, some of the most fundamentalist conservative theologians, even apologists, openly affirmed women pastors. You know, I think of Roger Nicole and Douglas Grotice and Craig Keener, a lot of other people that shouldn't have existed, basically existed. And and they weren't the liberal boogeyman and boogeywoman <laughs> I was supposed to be up in arms about, sure. you know. So, and, you know, then I had a wonderful conversation with a female uh, Lutheran pastor who was upset about the ELCA going liberal because of ordaining openly homosexual ministers. This was an anomaly to me. Mm. I mean, she shouldn't have existed. I mean, she's supposed to be, you know, the crazy liberal or something. But, you know, there she was uh, in front of my face. No horns, no crazy radical feminist agenda, you know, no tearing down the Church of Christ, just a decent person trying to serve God. So, you know, I I thought complementarianism had made a lot of logical sense and was a coherent system, uh, as well, but it, you know, that turned out also to be, to be different. And, and so by this time, Chris, I, I just had new eyes and I began right. to see the positive evidence in the scriptures that point towards a restoration of women in every sphere of society, including the church. And I, I just, I never really paid attention to that because to me it didn't matter. Uh, so, you know, I just began to realize that the burden of proof was not on me, but on the person and ideology that wants to prohibit Christians uh, from preaching the gospel and using, you know, the gifts that God gave them. Yeah. And we'll be talking about that burden of proof and uh, and about First Timothy here shortly. But first, before you begin, at least as far as I understand your the, the history uh, and the development of your thinking and, and work on this topic, you didn't begin by challenging the case f- uh, against female elders and teachers. You began by challenging the case for female deacons. And in fact, uh, an MA thesis that you wrote defending uh, or making the case for female deacons was published last year by Wiff- Wiffenstock. Can you tell us about the genesis of that project, uh, you know, the, how it is that you came to decide to write the MA thesis? What prompted you to make the case? Sure. Uh, the genesis of the project was a particular experience that Jessica and I had had at a church a number of years ago. Now, we became members of a small Reformed Baptist church in our area and were quite involved. Uh, for my part, I taught through the 1689 Confession and preached uh, sermons when the pastor was gone and so forth. But at any rate, we just kind of got really disturbed by how only the men prayed. Now, we had been part of a lot of you know, different churches over the years, but we had never been to a church where only the men prayed. Hmm. And so this was just kind of weird, and we thought it was you know, also kind of a, a spiritual issue. So I brought it up with the, uh, the church's sole pastor— and his reply was, oh, the women pray, just in their hearts, you know, not, not audibly. And so I asked, well, 
why not? You know, what, what's with this gag order on the women? And uh, he didn't really have a response. And so I eventually got him to allow women to pray audibly at church. But he set it up so only men prayed with men in the sanctuary, of course, and women prayed with women downstairs by the kitchen. Mm. Of course. So, you know, this forced segregation uh, obviously didn't help things. But, uh, you know, then Jessica and I started noticing other interesting traditions. Uh, you know, for example, women were not allowed to teach men about anything um, during a stated meeting of the church. So Wednesday night services, no problem. Women can teach men whatever they want to do, you know, as long as it's not a stated meeting of the church. So, you know, Jessica, uh, my wife, gave a brief presentation on biblical counseling on a Wednesday night gathering, for example. This was okay because it wasn't a stated meeting of the church. So in theory, you know, if the pastor went to the back room and changed the policy so that Wednesday night gatherings were stated meetings, (laughs) all of a sudden Jessica would have been sinning against God, usurping male authority, violating male headship, creating division, and, you know, if you take Randy Stinson and and Jay Ligon Duncan seriously in their their 2006 preface uh, to Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, you know, basically she would be contributing to the decline of Western civilization as we know it. Hmm. And, you know, wouldn't be long and the gays and pornographers and child molesters and adulterers would be running the streets and who knows what else, you know, just because of this, this change or whatever. So this just didn't seem very reasonable to me uh, because nothing would have changed right. about the actual situation, right? So, you know, and, and I realized eventually this was very common for churches, but it wasn't the state of the meeting thing. It was... Something else artificial, like, well, a majority of men in the audience, or, or from the pulpit, or topics of theology, or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. So this kind of got me thinking. Uh, but at the same time, you know, at that point, I was still a complementarian. So, but in any case, our main concern was this, uh, just kind of these interesting traditions at the church. And so, you know, long story short, we, we brought some of these issues up, uh, you know, to the elder, respectfully, submissively, as any faithful church member would. And we kept getting referred to these bylaws of the church. And we couldn't track down these mysterious bylaws until weeks <laughs> later, they were finally given to us. And so we read through these 27 pages of policies, and we didn't really know what we were looking for. But at any rate, uh, I came across something that really struck me. Virtually every paragraph of these bylaws had citations of Scripture to support what they said, from the Lord's table to the most obscure topics, like response sheets, you know, business meetings or things like that. Somehow the Bible could be cited for all of this, 27 <laughs> pages, except, except, Chris, for one paragraph, mm. the paragraph that prohibited half the congregation from holding office. I see. No person of female biology could serve as an elder or a deacon. And apparently this was so obvious that no biblical you know, references were even necessary. So this is uh, just really interesting to me, um, you know, because prohibiting Christians from serving in the church, you know, in an office can be very significant. And when there's no warrant given, that kind of tells me, oh, you know, somebody's tradition, somebody's agenda is asserting itself. Yeah. And, you know, this is just a great irony. This is a self-proclaimed Reformed church. How is this a practice of sola scriptura? I mean, how could a Reformed church so blindly allow tradition to take precedent over the scriptures, which is definitely what was happening? So I did some research and realized that, you know, some of the most fundamentalist and conservative Reformed Baptist people, you know, John Piper, John MacArthur, 
you know, people in that broad category that, um, you know, our, our group kind of respected and admired at that time and place, they all affirmed women deacons. Hmm. And the reason for this was obvious. There wasn't any good reason to forbid uh, women deacons, and there was every good reason to encourage women deacons. So I did some more research and was going to publish uh, an essay, but for various reasons, Jessica suggested that I do that as a master's thesis. So right. I did. And, uh, you know, my advisor was a PCA elder and professor of Greek exegesis who greatly supported the project. And a few years later, I revised it, published it, and, and then also ironically got the endorsement of a, of a Reformed Baptist pastor. So that was uh, very encouraging as well. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, you, you say that there's no good reason to uh, to prohibit females from serving um, as deacons, and there's every good reason to encourage it. So let's talk about the case that you make in that thesis and in the book that was published in November of last year by Wiffenstock. As I understand it, your case consists in a primary premise and conclusion and then a few arguments that sort of confirm that primary conclusion. So maybe you could start by briefly telling us about that primary premise and conclusion. In, in my discussions with complementarians, and as a complementarian uh, myself in the past, the biggest issue in the debate over women in ministry seems to do with teaching authority. And that's sort of where your case for female deacons begins, isn't that right? Well, first things first. Uh the thesis in the case for women deacons is a very targeted argument. Uh, it is a monograph aimed at persuading, specifically, evangelical complementarians to allow women deacons. Hmm. It was a complementarian writing to other complementarians. Right. Now, of course, by the time I'd finished and published it, I, I left that and, and, you know, I was going to a different church as well and different things. But, uh, you know, and also many or most complementarians uh, that, you know, have published and expressed their views on things like this. They they already affirmed women deacons, but so so I just really wanted to eliminate any doubt because there were still denominations and uh, still other authors who who disagreed, and there just wasn't a leg to stand on. So, um, the argument was pretty simple. I I just first delineated you know the difference between eldership and the diaconate and saying. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.12 is largely irrelevant to this discussion because deacons aren't required to teach or be able to teach at church. And, you know, as far as your phrasing, uh, you know, teach, teaching authority, you know, I frankly don't know what that means uh, or, you know, agree today that that's what Paul is addressing. Mm. But in any case, I made that distinction for those who might be concerned with that. So from there, I just went to Romans 16, uh, 1 through 2, and the qualifications for women deacons in 1 Timothy 3.11. And then history to show that they existed. They've really always always been a part of the church, and so there's every reason to uh, to have women deacons at church. Okay, so the argument is that the uh, that First Timothy two and its prohibition is of, if anything, uh, at the time anyway, your thought was, if anything, what it prohibited was women from exercising teaching authority, uh, but that that doesn't apply to the office of deacon, which doesn't involve mm -hmm. teaching authority. And then you had some confirming evidence like the existence of women deacons, uh, like, like in Romans. What, was there other confirming evidence you found as well, or in history, either in Scripture or in history? Uh, I mean, not, I mean, other than uh, what I presented in the book, I mean, I guess, you know, you could always, always bulk up, but, um, uh, you know, again, Keep in mind, I'm making the argument from a complementarian perspective. You know, I'm just saying, if you adopt the complementarian interpretation of 1 Timothy 2.12, it isn't a problem for, for women deacons. Now, I obviously don't agree with complementarian interpretations of the text today, but at any rate, 
you know, I think the women in First Timothy 3 are women deacons, and Phoebe in Romans 16 is as official a deacon as one could possibly ask for in the first century. Uh, you know, certainly there are dozens of, of uh, you know, other women deacons in churches, just as there are, you know, in the churches I've attended today. Mm. But they don't have the title, uh, because some women and in, in, in men just find it offensive, I guess. Um, you know, I've attended a number of uh, PCA and Reformed churches in the past decade, and they all have women deacons. Uh, they meet the biblical qualifications, they have the particular responsibilities, <laughs> the regular functions, but they're not They just don't have the title. Yeah. yeah, they're not listed in the bulletins, and I think that's just a really good example of, of, of sexism and patriarchy alive and well in the church. I just don't understand it. So, But as far as history is concerned... Uh, it can be tricky since the role of deacons changes throughout history. Mm. You know, for example, some women deacons, uh, sometimes called deaconesses, were subordinate to male deacons. That changes depending on the context. Uh, but there's no question that, that women at some points in church history were ordained to be in the office of deacon. It was an official church office. It was a clergy uh, considered a, you know, on that level. And one interesting thing I learned uh, in this historical research is that the, uh, for example, the canons of the Council of Nicaea show the standard practice of churches that, you know, deaconesses are included among the clergy. You know, I, th- I thought that was interesting because most Christians think of the Council of Nicaea as being, oh, Arianism, the deity of Christ, and all of that. But apparently it was on their minds. And the same is true for the Council of Chalcedon, mm. uh, which provided an age requirement for deacons. So... And, you know, as you, you probably have, have looked through it, or I, I don't know how much you have, but uh, I also found it interesting uh, in that section how, you know, a lot of today's Reformed theologians take issue with women deacons when it has a particularly rich history in that tradition. Uh, everyone from Calvin to Boving to Warfield, Charles Hodge, and others, they don't have any real problem with women deacons. And the same is true in the Baptist tradition. Uh, in fact, as I show in the book, uh, one of the confessions behind the First and Second London Baptist Confession explicitly affirms women deacons. <laughs> so at the end of the day, uh, you know, those who forbid women deacons are, are just really in such a tiny, tiny uh, fringe category, uh, you know, in the broader picture, and even by the most conservative standards, that it's, it's just hard to take seriously, especially when, you know, that position is saturated with threats and warnings about how you know, if we allow this, we're somehow going to destroy the church and, and, and make God angry. You know? Yeah. You know, I, I struggle to, to think of much biblical evidence that uh, these extreme complementarians, if, if that's a fair way of putting it, might uh, might leverage in support of their prohibition against women deacons. And the only passage that I can think of is 1 Timothy 3.12, where Paul says to let deacons each be the husband of one wife. And if verse 11 is, as you write, I think, uh, as, as you write about in your book, if verse 11 is about female deacons as opposed to deacons' wives, as, as I think a number of complementarians have, have suggested, then, then why a set of qualifications different from or in addition to those of male deacons? Why, why, are they, why do they have like a sort of different set of qualifications and why are deacons said to be uh, required to be the husband of one wife? Well, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking here. Uh, I mean, there there are two sets of qualifications because Paul is talking about two groups, male deacons on the one hand and women deacons on the other. Uh, if you're asking why they're different, well, probably because of the, you know, the particular challenges that each of those positions uh, would often encounter, you know, men and women in, in the first century. So the... 
say, if, for example, in, in the qualifications for elders in, in, the, uh, in the pastorals, there is, you know, this assumption that, you know, an elder is a married male father, okay? And that's probably because that was the typical eldership situation in the first century. Does that mean that this is a requirement that all elders or deacons or whatever be, you know, married uh, fathers? You know, they have to have children. They have to be male. I don't think so. I just don't think that's a part of it. It's just an assumption that this is the, the typical situation. And that's why you have, you know, some of the stuff about gossip or, 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 you know, not being addicted to much wine. Why? Well, because in that situation, you know, I mean, even, even today, I mean, men tend to be, you know, more alcoholic, not necessarily, <laughs> and it depends on the culture, but, you know, that's just kind of the assumption built into the, in the text. So, so it's not that the, that they have separate requirements that aren't true of each other, but rather the requirements listed are given because they're the ones that were most relevant to that, that particular, uh, you know, men deacons in one case and women deacons in another? I would generally say that, yeah. What do you make of egalitarians that have argued that um, that husband of one wife or, or one woman man, as, as Payne has put it in his writings, I think, is really more a prohibition against polygamy in general and, and not, you know, it really doesn't have much to do with men specifically. It just uses male language because polygamy was, was more common, whereas the opposite, you know, women with multiple husbands was unheard of. You know, I, 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 I'm still sorting some of that out. I, I don't know exactly what that phrase meant. There's at least, you know, three broad interpretations of it. Um, but in any case, you know, I, I don't see how that's really relevant to the discussion because, uh, yeah, there's an assumption that, you know, this is the situation we're dealing with. Mm. Obviously, that's, that's going to change, you know. Um, you know, if, say, for example, uh, today, pastors struggle potential pastors struggle with video games. I'm going to put it in my requirements <laughs> that to be a pastor, you better not have an addiction to video games. You mm. know what I'm saying? So uh, that's just kind of the way it works. You might, you might, for example, have a prohibition against men serving as deacons who are addicted to pornography, for example. And, you know, um, I don't know if pornography existed 2000 years ago. And so maybe, sure. yeah, so it's not necessarily a universal thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of historical relevance. Well, what do you make the, though, of those complementarians who claim that when Paul commends Phoebe as a diakonos, um, that he just means something like servant rather than some sort of office of deacon? Well, I guess my response is that there's really no good basis for such an assertion. Uh, I mean, I can go into the New Testament and diminish the names and words given to a variety of groups, whether deacons, apostles, disciples, you know, by pointing out potential broader uses of the terms. Uh, as I show in the book, it's just kind of silly to make these demands of more proof uh, that Paul is, you know, addressing some official office when the very idea, you know, the very idea of church offices was in development and very fluid at that point. But what's pe peculiar about Romans 16 is not the use of deacon to describe Phoebe, but the way in which Paul elevates her. Mm. You know, associating a person with a city, uh, like Paul does, is you know almost like how Ignatius associ associated bishops with cities. You know, a quarter century later or whatever, and you know the way that Paul commands others to provide resources to this person, so she can more effectively do her job. I, I think is very telling. Uh, it's only if I have an agenda to diminish Phoebe's role 
and significance in the church that I'm going to really pursue these questions about her subordination because Paul's intention is the exact opposite. He's not, he's just trying to elevate her, to commend mm. her for a tremendous, you know, servant leadership, not, not to diminish that. Yeah. Okay. Now, at this point in your development, you were arguing only for the legitimacy of female deacons. But as you've already mentioned, by the time you were done with that work, um, you had begun to – if I understand things, you, you were no longer really convinced of complementarianism more broadly. And you went on to write a doctoral dissertation making the case for not just female deacons as your mm-hmm. MA thesis, but the case for female elders. So can you tell us just a little bit about what led to that? Sure. And I, I think I covered some of this earlier in the interview. Uh, you know, my studies in the area of women in ministry continued after that, that uh, you know, master's level work, and I eventually changed positions. And, but, you know, while I'm on that topic, there, there's two things I do want to add, because I think they're important and uh, worth mentioning, especially for uh, certain members of your, of your uh, audience. First of all, uh, my choice of writing a doctoral dissertation in favor of women pastors was not exactly my choice. (laughs) Uh, I originally wanted to do a a biblical theology of gender, that is a a whole canonical theology of gender, because nobody had really done a comprehensive project like that. And still today, the, the new studies in biblical theology series and the new dictionary of biblical theology, they have nothing uh, under gender. And that's really strange and unfortunate because they have entries and publications on so many other obscure topics. But, well, anyway, uh, as anyone who has done a, a, you know, a doctoral program knows, uh, choosing a topic has more to do with politics and, uh, you know, advisor dynamics and practicality than what people actually want to study. Mm. Uh, Most people I know did their dissertation on something they frankly would have done on something else, or they would have written it in a very different way if it was up to them. So, a long story short, I provided four different options to my uh, potential advisor from the University of South Africa because we just couldn't agree. I spent almost an entire year writing this epic proposal, and it was totally dismissed. (laughs) But I still wanted to move forward anyway. So, you know, I gave four options, and one of those was a new case for female elders. And the reason I included this was simply because I recently changed positions and would like to study it more, and because uh, my advisor sounded interested in that area. Uh, she is a, a Roman Catholic nun from Zimbabwe uh, who describes herself as post-feminist and uh, really has a concern for women in ministry in the Catholic Church. However, I really didn't want my advisor to choose that topic <laughs> because uh, – you know, as you can imagine, Chris, uh, you know, I, I knew what that would mean. It would mean that, uh, for, you know, for one, countless job opportunities would be closed. Doors would be closed. I, I constantly have to worry about job security employment as a Christian professor. I, I, I'd lose friends. I'd be ridiculed, labeled, seen by some people as an enemy of Christianity. But, uh, you know, Providence apparently had it that that's the one that my advisor chose. So, as best as I could, with the time and resources I had, I wrote it and uh, had to exclude two big chapters from it because it got too long. And I would have preferred it to look differently in some ways, but, you know, that's okay. I'm generally happy with it for what purpose it served, and uh, I continue to revise and publish chapters uh, from it. Now, second of all, and uh, it's sort of a tangent, but I think, but I think it's relevant, um, 
is is the nature of changing theological positions in general. Mm. And uh, you know, I, I know we don't have t- too much time to address this, but um, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting. As you know, uh, in a lot of your listeners, there's a lot of different theological positions and ideas out there. Yeah. And uh, under each major category, whether God and creation ecclesiology, soteriology, whatever. There's dozens of different positions, models, interpretations. And with each, you know, denomination or school or organization, there's usually a conscious or unconscious selection of these hundreds of positions to form a particular theological identity. And so from the various positions, there's all kinds of combinations of positions, you know. Some people are Calvinists in soteriology, but charismatic in pneumatology. Some people are Baptist in their views of baptism and lean, you know, sort of reformed in covenant theology or whatever, on and on and on. There's obviously, you know, agreement on the basics, you know, existence of God and deity of Christ, things like that. But there's literally hundreds of thousands of different theological combinations a Christian can have. Right. You know, especially for somebody who wants to have the right theology on a whole bunch of issues. Now and and wants it to be based on scripture primarily and not just accepting something that they've been told. Sure, I mean, yeah. Even if you're restricted to the scriptures, you, I mean, you, you still have a huge variety. So right. um, now, the chances of a person being born and raised to believe the perfect combination, you know, or even something close to it, is almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely minute. You know, whether one in a thousand or one in ten thousand, chances are. Because I have no control over my birth, I'm going to be raised with a very specific subset of a subset of a subset of Christianity. Assuming, of course, I'm even raised a Christian. And because of that, statistically speaking, to get closer to a more true position, I should actually assume that most of what I've been taught is problematic. Now, obviously, a lot of Christian parents are not going to like hearing this. <laughs> because I'm, you know, suggesting that Christians should challenge their traditions from the outset. But, you know, but I'm not saying, you know people early on to just disbelieve everything they're taught. Right. That's, that's not possible. Anyway, there's, there's no view from nowhere. But uh, I am saying that, you know, just on a mathematical basis, a person is going to have to make a number of significant modifications before they're even in the range of what might be considered good and true theology. And I think that applies to other disciplines. So, you know, I've learned to become very suspicious of people who have never changed their theology. You know, I have, I have several good friends who believe everything they were taught as a child when it comes to theology, and yet they're so willing to argue with others that they're right. You know, and the, the whole situation is like going to a convenience store and buying a lottery ticket and saying, I know I have the winning combination, but without <laughs> actually opening it up. Mm. You know, you, you can't know you're right until you're willing to genuinely allow other people to persuade you. So I didn't always believe that. You know, I was suspicious of people who, who changed their theology. But, you know, part of part of my change on this issue comes from the experience of the last five years when Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons came to my door. And I I have to ask myself, am I a Christian version, you know, of a Jehovah's Witness and Mormon? Am I the person that's so entrenched in a system of thinking that I just can't imagine stepping outside of it and, and challenging it intentionally? I mean, I don't think I am, but how do I know that? Yeah. So all I'm saying, Chris, is that part of, part of my change in all this it just involves a, you know, pr- applying Proverbs eighteen seventeen, You know, the first to plead his or her case seems right until another comes and examines. And so, you know, we have to do reverse apologetics. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny when I teach college and I, 
I really enjoy it when students leave uh, a class and they say, oh my goodness, I had no idea that's what I actually believe. (laughs) (laughs) You know, fish don't know they're swimming in water. Uh, The crazy man doesn't know he's crazy. I didn't know I was part of a radically sexist, legalistic church until I left it. You know, I didn't know a lot of these things. So uh, anyway, so as far as I'm concerned then, uh, you know, my change of views is largely due to, you know, an, an intentional, rigorous application of that proverb and of course all the experiences of life that that god brings along the way sure and i can i can relate a lot to what you have said and have changed my position in in a number of areas as well and have caught flack for it um so yeah i mean i I definitely commend alongside you uh the kind of attitude and approach that you're describing let's talk about this argument that you make in your dissertation It, it begins as i understand it with a couple of one passage we've already been talking about very briefly first timothy 2 11 through 14 uh, but but another but another one first corinthians 14 34 to 35 two passages that at least on the surface uh, at least to many people seem to support the complementarian thesis uh, i've had complementarians and egalitarians on the show before as you know uh, and this is ground that we've covered but i'd love to hear your take on these passages starting first with that passage in corinthians where Paul says, or is at least believed to say by, by some Christians, uh, that women mustn't speak in churches and should be in, in submission. He even seems to preface this in verse 33 by saying that this is commanded of all the churches of the saints. Um, so what is your take on this text? Well, very briefly, uh, my, my take on the text is that the situation is similar to 1 Timothy 2.12 and that the context is women learning. And that some kind of disruptive behavior is, occur- behavior is occurring that requires a more submissive attitude. Uh, that's a fairly standard view. It's not without difficulties. Uh, no view is. So, you know, we're just kind of left to at least provisionally hold on to an interpretation that's the least problematic, you know, and just makes more sense. Now, as, as far as the phrase, all of the churches of the saints goes, uh, this is often argued uh, – that Paul isn't giving a local limited command, but some kind of contextless, situationless, universal, abstract principle that Christians today just kind of lift out of their Bibles and enforce at their local congregations. Mm. Now, of course, I think that entire framework is erroneous. Uh, I used to approach the New Testament with that lens, just kind of sorting out propositions that are culturally situated from those that are not, and building a theology for the church today on the basis of the universal ones. But that's a, you know, a really terrible way of doing theology, and it's impossible. I mean, nobody actually adopts that system because it can't be done. Mm. You know, th- there's no indication that when Paul commands believers to greet one another with a physical holy kiss, that this only applies to the church he was immediately addressing. You know, but I don't know of a single church today that <laughs> follows such a command— you know, in this immediate universal way like that. Sure. You know, there's, there's all kinds of examples like that that can be given. But not only that, but it's just a poor framework because it's so binary and dualistic. You know, the very fact that people go to the Bible with this binary attitude of what applies to me and what doesn't just shows us how easily we can abuse the Scriptures in the first place. You know, Christians should go to the Bible asking, okay, somehow this has to do with me. I wonder how. You know, not asking, okay, let's find all the verses that are local and contemporary and contextual and isolate them from the universal ones. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's just silly. So I, I really can't agree with, with some of the you know, attitudes and assumptions behind the question. 
Uh, I think uh, N.T. Wright has done a, a great job at showing how the whole question of does this apply today or not uh, isn't even a legitimate question. That's not how the Bible can be used or should be used. That's not how theology is done. The Bible is not an encyclopedia like that. It's, it's not a storehouse of facts that just needs reassembling. It's far greater, far deeper than that simplistic modern model. So I, I agree with Wright and others uh, that all of Scripture applies or should be used and understood today from Mosaic Law to the New Testament epistles. But they apply and can be reapplied in different ways. Because there's no such thing as a command that isn't limited to context. Right. You know, an, an assertion that isn't embedded in culture. Uh, John Frank uh, makes the point in his book, The Character of Theology, that even the confession, Christ is Lord, you know, can mean all kinds of different things to different Christians. So, yeah, I guess I just have trouble with the idea that we can cut and paste certain verses from the scriptures and create this theology for today without you know, any real critical thought. What do you make, if you don't mind me asking, of, of Paine's thesis that, um, that verses 34 and 35 are uh, a later um, interp- – interpolation isn't quite the right word, but you know, sure. a later insertion by, mm-hmm. by scribes. What do you make of that thesis? Well, my opinion is, is pretty straightforward. I think you know, there's, there's obviously a, a possibility you know, that that happened. Um, by and large – you know, I've taught Greek for three years now and, and, and have studied this a little bit. Uh, the textual evidence largely is against that thesis. Uh, so I, I don't hold to that. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that it, it's possible, but there just really isn't enough hard evidence um, uh, for me to be persuaded on that. Okay. Well, earlier – sorry, were you about to say something more? No, no. Oh, okay, Sorry. Earlier we talked about the issue of uh, a phrase I used and, and you called into question uh, teaching authority. And Paul says in First Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over, over a man, or at least that's how the ESV translates it, uh, which seems to prohibit women from two distinct and positive activities. On, on the one hand, teaching men or, or even teaching at all, uh, and on the other hand, exercising authority over men. But if I understand you correctly, you argue for a different take. Is, is that the case? Well, I guess I disagree with uh, the way the question is framed, and, and that's no offense to you or anything. It's, it's fairly common, but... Uh, I'm, maybe trying, I can, I'm trying to represent sure, complimentary. Sure. No, I, oh, I, know, I understand, yeah. Uh, but may, maybe I can answer your question by, by analyzing the question. Uh, well, the ESV translation, uh, for instance, uh, like any translation that renders the verse this way, uh, is not actually making much of a decision about the nature of the teaching or exercising of authority. I mean, it's somewhat, but... It, it definitely doesn't indicate that these are good, normal activities. Uh, the immediate context suggests the opposite. The whole chapter is filled with prohibitions and corrections, you know, for heaven's sakes. So the major decision, uh, an erroneous decision, I think, that the ESV and others makes is rendering uh, authentane, you know, this extremely rare uh, word used nowhere else in the New Testament, as this generic idea of exercising authority. Uh, I've now written probably fifty to 60,000 words of peer review research on just this verse and just this word this year. Hmm. And I think I've made it pretty clear that exercising authority or having authority is not the best choice for the rendering of the term, at least within Paul's lifetime. 
I would go into detail, but that's why I publish so much on that. <laughs> uh, secondly, uh, the ESV also makes a, a choice, as you rightly noted, uh, by separating the activities. I would argue, as others have, including those, uh, some who forbid women pastors, uh, actually, that there are probably two aspects of a single activity in view. Hmm. Again, it's, it, you know, I don't want to get too technical uh, into the detail, but uh, I think the strongest evidence of this is how Paul constantly uses two terms to describe a single activity, especially in the pastoral epistles. Uh, Craig Blomberg first pointed this out to me. And so context is king, you know, as the saying goes. And, you know, the flow of thought combined with, you know, what I just said strongly suggests that the author is not, you know, drawing this a stark separation. Now, overall, my interpretation of the verse is, is fairly simple. I think the author is doing what he's been doing since the first verse of the chapter, correcting the specific demeanor and manner of various behaviors enacted by Christians. In other words, Paul is not addressing, like in the first part of, of chapter 2, prayer in general, but with hands lifted up, right? Paul is not addressing clothing and dress in general, but this flagrant, pompous clothing of wealthy Ephesian women, hmm like jewelry and braided hair, which he specifically mentions. That train of thought continues into verse 11 and 12. Paul is addressing not teaching and exercising authority in general, and he certainly isn't addressing pastoral offices. Instead, he's addressing the particular way in which women learn. I think that is exegetically strong, contextually strong, backed by the best scholarship available to us, and is straightforward and reasonable. And I would also suggest that if a person's ears weren't inundated with so much noise from critics in this debate, you would conclude the same thing by sitting down and just reading your King James Version or NIV, you know, supplemented with the standard lexicon. Okay, so uh, a couple of things I want to drill in a little bit further on this text. You know, you, you said something interesting, which is that um, leading up to and, and following this verse, um, the the author, whom I presume to be Paul, is is, uh, is discussing specific manifestations of Christian activities and not Christian activities more generally. And yet, a complementarian I could easily see asking the question, shouldn't Christians – of all time, everywhere, pray for all kinds of people, as Paul says in verses 1 and 2. Shouldn't we lift hands, uh, holy hands, without anger or, or, or quarreling, as Paul says in verse 8? You know, it, it seems to many as though the opposite is going on from what you claim, that, that, that he is making more broad and use for universal claims both before and after this verse. What, what, how, how would you respond to that? Well, I, I would default back to what I said earlier about the nature of what we say with universal. I mean, what do we really mean by that? I haven't seen a, a really good discussion uh, you know, from, from anyone about what that really means and how it's consistently applied in a hermeneutic. Uh, so, I mean, again, it, it, it's, I, I think it's very clear that um, uh, you know, the, the context is the, the situation that whatever is, is happening in the church that he's addressing is requiring very specific corrections. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how, you know, complimentary could say what you said, because again, I mean, I, I see church people in church with braided hair all the time and, 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 <laughs> and jewelry. And so 
obviously there's some 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 stuff going on here that you know we need to talk about and uh but i think you're right i uh, yes i think what 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 is really the point of of verses 11 and 12 you know is is still something we would take into consideration at church and that we should humbly learn before our teachers and not get on a high horse and and uh Act in a way that's that's pompous and distracting and isn't edifying to the body, and that applies as as several people have noted, uh, um, and I can't can't remember what publication I, I noted this, but um, yeah, the, the instruction applies to to men just as much as as women, and uh, that's pretty standard. I mean, uh, uh, that gender specific instruction really isn't limited to to one gender and maybe we'll talk about that later well yeah but so, so if this isn't i mean if there is a, a, a to some extent a, a universal and, and gender non-specific application of this verse if if the author isn't saying i prohibit women and women alone throughout all time from teaching or exercising authority over a man uh what what is what is the author prohibiting that uh specifically has to do with um with his historical context well I, that's a, that's a good question i'm not sure anyone could ever answer that uh satisfactorily i i don't think anyone really knows exactly what the the real um specific context was in in my mind and in my study I see a situation where, uh, you know, women and, and men are gathered at church, and there's probably a male teacher, and some of the wealthy, high on the horse, you know, Ephesian women are, uh, you know, correcting their teachers in a way that's inappropriate. Um, they're just they're not beha- not learning submissively like like good students should learn, and uh, again, you know that. You know, we, we we learn something from that and say, okay, that's that's what we would expect of 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 men too. We don't want you know men to to be doing this otherwise uh, as as well. And so, uh, I don't know if that answers your question too much, but um, uh, I, I think you know, I'm not I'm not convinced that the English language is even capable <laughs> yeah. of really conveying uh, the sense of the text. I, there's there are some good attempts. As I've uh, published in my in, in that article on on First Timothy two twelve on translation, uh, you know, wrenching authority from a man or something like that, or I mean, there's just so many attempts, and it's risky, you know, it, because you can say too much and you yeah. can get too specific. But then on the other hand, if you're so broad in general, you're you're almost saying nothing, and and you can lead to a lot of other problems too. So, but would would it be fair to say that to you and and I think this was probably true of many other egalitarians as well that that it seems as though what the author is prohibiting is from women in this case, uh, but anybody of all time who would usurp or, or, or wrench, as you said a moment ago, an authority that wasn't properly theirs to begin with from somebody who did, in fact, have that authority. Well, you know, again, I don't see it as that simple. I don't, I don't see it as there's just a, a, a category of people that simply possess authority in mm-hmm. the situation because, um, again – uh, what what is this teaching then? How does this flow with the chapter with with the, with the thought of you know it, it's it's I, I give the example in one of my essays that if I go to a concert uh, and I say the concert was loud, okay, you, you you go away with that with a certain understanding of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. If I say the concert was obnoxious, now you, you might 
you know, come away with a certain understanding, three or four different meanings of what, what I meant when I said obnoxious. I mean, were, were, were there a bunch of naked people? Was there a bunch of swearing? I mean, what, what, was it loud music? But, but if I said, you know, the concert was loud and obnoxious, you know, both words are contributing some kind of semantic material, right? Semantic content, but they're still distinct, you know, uh, obnoxious and loud they're not the same thing yeah but yet you know what i'm saying is when i talk about a concert being loud and obnoxious it's it's one experience and so i think the same thing's happening in the verse teaching and authentic okay this is an experience of what exactly we don't know precisely you know the best we could do is 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 look at the the ephesian women in that culture look at the nature of these types of instructions look at the flow of the chapter and, uh, you know, and, and go from there. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Um, if this isn't a uh, universal prohibition about women and sp- women in particular, then why does Paul seem to ground his command in the created order, uh, specifically in that Adam was created first and that it was Eve who was deceived? Um, you know, complementarians see this, and, and I think to a certain extent it's understandable that they would see support for the view that, uh, that what Paul is doing is making a command for all time, that it's about women specifically because it was women who were created second and created subordinate to man, um, especially the complementarian thinks, because Genesis calls Eve Adam's helper. Um, how, how would you respond to this kind of le- uh, reasoning as, a, as, a, as an underpinning to the uh, complementarian understanding of 1 Timothy? Sure. That, there's a lot packed into that question. I'll just try I do to, that a lot. Sorry. <laughs> to, te- <laughs> to tease out a couple things. Sure. Um, well, what's interesting about the argument to, from so-called creation order is that in actuality, all arguments and all ethics in Christianity originate from the created order. And, and just to, to make sure that the audience doesn't get lost in all this jargon, uh, by creation order, we generally mean you know, God's ideal for the world, people and things conforming to their true uh, original natures, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Thomas Schreiner and his uh, doctoral student, uh, Benjamin Riach, or uh, I don't know how to say his last name, he wrote a book on uh, this topic in slavery, really push this argument. And you hear it all the time. Uh, you can't limit Paul's prohibition to a certain time and place because he grounds it in the eternal realities of the creation order. But when you think about this, it doesn't make any sense. Whether or not a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage or refers back to the creation story does nothing to legitimate, uh, legitimate uh, universalizing a command in, in the sense of lifting it out of its historical context. I would argue that to, to use the same example I gave before, that the command to kiss one another with a holy kiss is grounded in the creation order. People are originally made to love each other and express their affection. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure Adam and Eve and others probably did plenty of kissing. So whether or not Paul quotes from Genesis uh, is irrelevant. He may choose to bring up the original creation as a talking point, or he won't. But the nature of ethics and morality doesn't change because of that. Mm. So even if Paul is making some kind of argument from the creation order, and I don't even think he is, this has been blown way out of proportion. And it's anything but a license to ignore the fact that we're still still dealing with literature that needs interpretation and exegesis and only has meaning in a particular context. Now, I think the reason Paul mentions uh, Eve sinning first is simply to humble these 
wealthy, you know, gold jewelry, braided hair, Ephesian women who are apparently acting a bit pompous. Hmm. Paul is saying, look, in the big picture of things, you've forgotten that you existentially as women are not better than men at all. In fact, it was Eve who sinned first. How much more should this Hmm. fact cause you to stop the inappropriate behavior and to act more Christ-like? So far from establishing some kind of universal contextless abstract gender role, you know, of male power and authority and female subordination. Uh, Paul is just continuing to do what he's been doing verses earlier. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The the explanation that I've heard Payne give uh, is that what Paul is doing is sort of uh, offering the, the 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 most notable example from uh, from Scripture of women being deceived and then deceiving men as a result. Um, in light of the, in light of what Payne believes that Paul was addressing in, in the local context there, and I and I found that to be very plausible. But I got to say that the, the explanation you've offered is is equally plausible in my mind. Did you have any thoughts at all on on the on Payne's thesis? No, I, I really don't. Okay, I, I mean he it, it that's possible, but no, I I haven't no. Okay, well you know we've been talking a lot about what this verse probably is not prohibiting, but you don't just make a case that this verse doesn't prohibit women from being uh, elders. You, you make the case that, that that understanding of this passage would actually contradict other texts in the New Testament, um, something that those of us like myself who believe in inerrancy, and even I think many who would just affirm a more generic infallibility of Scripture, just would not be able to countenance. Can, can, can you tell us about what other New Testament texts seem to teach in affirming uh, the ability for women to be uh, elders? Sure, and, and not just texts, but teachings, mm. uh, you know, and, and, and attitudes and, and behaviors. Um, uh, you know, in these discussions, we, you know, we, can, we can just tend to get too, too, too honed in and, 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 uh, on, on things like that, but you know, I have a, a much more a nuanced uh, bibliology than when you first interviewed me three years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally, totally different topic there. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I still hold to some kind of you know internal coherence in the theology and theologies uh, we find in the scriptures. So, I guess very simply, um, if if the variety of complementarian interpretations stand. What this basically means is that it is ungodly for Christian women to preach the gospel to their own congregations. Hmm. Now, now, just stop and think about that for a second. If the complementary narrative is true, it's a sin against God for godly Christian women to preach the gospel to their own church. Now, to me, that is remarkable. And I think that goes against so much of New Testament theology. It goes against so much about what we know about the importance of preaching the gospel to the world. You know, some first century Christians were willing to have their, you know, their genitals snipped, you know, in circumcision for the sake of winning some, you know, as, as the Apostle Paul said. And, and you know, I, I'm supposed to believe that the same person and this, this type of attitude would prohibit half the entire church from preaching the gospel just because their audiences are men? You know, you know to me, that just, that's just incredible. So the whole position, I think, goes against the attitude, uh, you know, of the New Testament in general that that says, you know, d- don't don't forbid speaking in tongues, even though it might be a little controversial at times. Don't forbid people from using their spiritual gifts. You know, the eye saying to the foot, "I don't need you," and all of that. Instead, do what is edifying to the church. Do what you are gifted to do. Preach the gospel to all creatures. Yes, even men. 
you know, I know men can be weird creatures sometimes, but look, you know, the Great Commission includes women doing this, and that includes men uh, on the other end as well. So, you know, it, it's just no wonder that Paul made no hesitation uh, in his commending several women in his letters by calling them co-workers in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll hear some people say, oh, yeah, that means they did a good job baking cookies for other Christians and taking care of children and doing those things. But that's eisegesis. That's not thanks to Jesus. And so, so not only does the complementarian position tear up the importance of preaching the gospel and subsumes that under this, you know, pseudo-conservative ideals about what it means to be godly man or woman, but it's actually a system that has already predetermined what the Bible will say. You know, it's, it's already been decided ahead of time that Junia couldn't have been an apostle in Romans 16, even though that's exactly what Paul says. Right, it must have just been a generic messenger of some sort. Sure, of course, it it had to have been. It's already been decided that Phoebe couldn't have been a real deacon like deacons today, even though that's what the author was saying. It's already been decided that Christians who preach the word boldly in Acts chapter 4 couldn't have included women, even though that's exactly who made up that group. You know, it's already been determined that Paul couldn't have been an egalitarian, even though that's precisely the case in 1 Corinthians 7 the largest chapter on marriage in the Bible. You know, it's, it's already been decided that Galatians 3.28 isn't condemning sexism in the church, even though that's the immediate implication, on and on and on. So, so as far as your question goes, I think the egalitarian nature of the new covenant, which is signified in the gender-inclusive signs of baptism in the Lord's table and prophesied by the prophet Joel— the theology of Paul and the priority of preaching the gospel in the early church, and so many other teachings and aspects of New Testament theology, the, the complementarian interpretations of 1 Timothy 2.12 just will not fit at all. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll be honest with, with my listeners. That, that's the struggle I'm facing right now as I sit atop the fence, so to speak, is that um, I—, I it's difficult for me to reconcile the egalit- or the complementarian thesis when it concerns these passages with what seems to me to be clear examples of women with the kind of authority that Paul seems to be talking to Timothy about in this passage uh, and, 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 the, and some of the broader theology that you've been describing. Uh, there is one more question I have um, regarding your dissertation in, the, in this text in 1 Timothy. Um, you offer an argument after this case that you've offered. You offer this argument to those who aren't yet convinced by what you've had to say, an, argue, an argument having to do with the relative weight of texts exhibiting different degrees of clarity. Can, can you explain that for us? Yeah, I, I alluded to this earlier, but uh, basically I argue that there is a an undeniable hermeneutical standard going on in this debate. Most Christians uh, of all sides of this debate tend to agree that the clearer texts of Scripture should help interpret the more obscure. Complementarians apply this principle pretty much everywhere except, you guessed it, 1 Timothy 2.12. All of a sudden, the verse is so clear and so plain that we can have this, you know, confidence in banning millions of Christians from preaching and teaching the gospel on the basis of it. And like I said, I, I've written an article on this, uh, which is, uh, it's a revised portion of that chapter, and, uh, you know, I hope to see it in print sometime soon. 
All right. Well, let me talk about two more planks in the case that you make for female elders in your dissertation. And the first one is one that really fascinates me because it it kind of turns the tables on what I've often heard as, as a common complementarian argument. I mean, even just the other day, a, a good friend of mine was just adamant uh, that the Bible requires wives to be subordinate to their husbands. In, in fact, he said that this is the clear and consistent message throughout all of Scripture. But you argue differently, and then you have something to say about what the implications for the church are uh, of the proper relationship between a husband and wife. Can you flesh that out for us? Yeah, sure. Um, just to make sure our audience kind of knows the, the story here, uh, those against women pastors often make that argument uh, from marriage. Uh, they say that marriage is, is uh, you know, a foundational relationship in society so that such that uh, the dynamics in it extend to the workplace and into church and to all kinds of spheres. So if the scriptures teach that marriage is a simple hierarchy where man is the permanent superordinate and woman the permanent subordinate, this would suggest that this kind of arrangement should be upheld in church as well, uh, which means that only men could be pastors. And, uh, you know, some of that argumentation goes along, uh, you know, because of how the New Testament authors use household language in talking about the church and things like that. But mm. the big problem with this argument is that, is that the first premise is incorrect. Uh, marriage is not a simple hierarchical relationship of a uh, superordinate and a subordinate. You may get that impression quickly reading uh, you know, a few select passages like Ephesians 5 and others and you know, ignoring the bulk of what the scriptures have to say about marriage. But in reality, marriage, uh, from Genesis to the teaching of the Apostle Paul— is and ought to be a partnership of equals. Hmm. And that means that one person does not have a personal authority over another by virtue of their biology. That's what I mean by partnership of equals. I think that's important because the word equality can be abused, as complementarians have rightly pointed out. Um, I have to say, though, Chris, this is one of those areas where evangelical culture in media is extremely influential. Uh, I have encountered so many Christians who could recite to you Ephesians 5.22 to you by memory. But if you were to ask them if they'd ever heard of Ephesians 5.21, (laughs) the very very previous verse which says that Christians should submit to one another, they'll say, oh, no, Paul said that? You know, I I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that reaction. And I think that's important, uh, you know, about what certain churches have highlighted. And, you know, I've asked Christians. So, so what's the largest chapter on marriage in the New Testament, if you had to guess? They'll say, oh, probably Ephesians 5. And that's not correct. And I'll say, well, actually, it's 1 Corinthians 7. And they'll say, 1 Corinthians 7? Uh, well, what's that? It's like the chapter doesn't even exist in their memories. Mm. And, you know, and I'll say things like, did you know the word submit in Ephesians 5, 22 actually isn't there? It's an insertion by translators carried over by verse 21. In, and which, it's, in which it's reflexive, right? Uh, I don't, one I, another. I'd have to. I have to have to go back and look at it. But okay. uh, anyway, um, you know, it, it, they'll say, "Well, no, I, you know, what is what does that verse even mean?" And so, and other, other things like, did you know that the only passage in the Bible that says husbands have authority over their wives is the same passage that says wives have authority over their husbands in the same manner? I'm referring, of course, to First Corinthians seven four and five. And you know, you'll get the deer in the headlights look. And uh, and then other things, like, did you know that almost every gender-specific command in the Bible applies to the opposite gender? And there, it, it's just like, whoa, it's just like lights turn on. And, and these people, you know, Chris, are people who have been going to church their entire lives. Mm. So all of this tells me that only one side of the story has been told. 
why do evangelicals easily remember the command of wives submitting to husbands, but not of submitting to one another? Why don't people who've been doing biblical studies for decades know that 1 Corinthians 7 is the largest chapter on marriage in the Bible, and it's unashamedly egalitarian? Why don't they know that the word submit isn't found in 522, et cetera, et cetera? You know, in, 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 in like the paragraph break between verse 22 and 21 All right. uh, is a huge issue. It's just like, you just can't do that, you know? Unfortunately, some translations don't do that. But So long story short, uh, you know, when one turns to the largest sections, uh, you know, on the nature of marital love in the scriptures, whether the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament or 1 Corinthians 7 in the New, the picture that emerges is very, very different than the ones that people have been told. And they haven't been taught to think critically about what Paul really meant in Ephesians 5 and Colossians about how submission and, you know, uh, how laying down your life is a tremendous act of submission. And that's exactly what men are commanded to do for their wives. And, uh, you know, of course, most importantly, why haven't, you know, Christians been taught why Paul is even giving this instruction in the first place? What prompted these commands? So anyway, if marriage is egalitarian, it's a partnership and companionship of equals, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And if these dynamics extend into the church, and that's, you know, questionable and debatable, but if they do, then of course, there's no reason really to forbid women in ministry. Okay. Well, so just so that it can't be said that you didn't you know, really address Ephesians five twenty one and twenty two. Uh, what? Do, why does Paul say in verse twenty one, submit to one another, and then go on in verse twenty two to say wives to your husbands, but never apparently, at least not in that train of thought, say men to your or husbands to your wives. Is there can, is there a reason why he well, says? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. sure. I, I, I mean, I could par- partially address this in, in a previous comment, but uh, again, I, th- I think you've raised an important issue and methodology and systematics. Like, um, you know, what do we mean by, uh, you know, if, if there's a, you know, like a, a presence of, you know, male leadership or male uh, authority, what do, what do we mean by that? And, um, you know, how, how do we deal with these? So basically when, when you ask questions like that, uh, and your question, as I understand it, is basically, well, then why did Paul say this, right? And, uh, and I think that's a good question. And uh, good answers have been offered. But at that point, I I just want to zoom out and ask, well, why does anyone in the scriptures offer any gender-specific instruction? Because what's evident is that, uh, you know, as I alluded previously, gender-specific commands rarely only apply to those specific genders. Mm. When Moses commanded husbands not to covet their neighbor's wives in, in the Ten Commandments, I don't think he meant to say that it was okay for women to covet their neighbor's husbands. Just because the command is gender-specific and doesn't address the other gender does not mean it only applies to that gender. Right. And, that apply, and that's true in the New Testament. Paul instructs male deacons not to be addicted to too much wine. This is excluded for women deacons in the same chapter. Does that mean it's okay for women deacons to be drunk with wine? Of course not. You know, men probably just had a, a bigger problem with alcoholism than women, and that's why Paul delineates. So, you know, there's all kinds of examples like this. Yeah. So, so when a person gets to, a, you know, Ephesians 5 or Colossians and sees that women are commanded to submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives, you know, should we really think that somehow submission is something only women should do? 
and that loving is something that only men should do. Or respecting so, is something that only women should it, do. Exactly. There's so many women that need respect, you know, that are disrespected. And so anyway, I, th- I think you sort of get the point. And yeah. there's actually biblical cases that directly challenge that, like Titus 2, 4 and elsewhere. Yeah, and you know, it seems to me that the only thing that it would take for Paul to be justified in issuing a gender-specific command in verse twenty-two is 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 there to be is there to have been a prevalence of say women you know wives that weren't being humble and, and submissive to their husbands when husbands maybe didn't have the same problem in re, in reverse. Do you know what I mean? If if sure, if, if, yeah. if men if men were generally submissive and look, I mean, I, I was I was thinking the other day about. Um, just what sort of phenomena we do see in scripture in the dynamic between husbands and wives. And, you know, what do I see? I see, um, I see Isaac submitting to, uh, what was it? Rebecca's request that Jacob be allowed to mm-hmm. leave the country to go find a wife. And he didn't, he submitted to her request. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see husbands submitting to these kinds of requests all the time. So maybe there just wasn't a problem. If, if mutual submission is the, um, is the uh, ideal. And if men weren't struggling that as much as women were, maybe that would justify this kind of gender-specific command. Is that kind mm-hmm. of what you're proposing as a possibility? Well, generally, I, I think so, if I understand you right. I mean, um, but if you actually look at how the complementarian model of marriage, this submission model, works out, like read Piper and Grudem in the, the, the opening chapters of Recover, Covering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You know, they say that women should what what does this mean it means that women shouldn't have a direct and personal influence over their husbands really oh yeah yeah and uh, so basically it should be impersonal and indirect and and then we wonder why all these marriages are plagued by passive aggression Hmm. and 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 how women are are trained to manipulate men well yeah it's like we're, we're telling them that's exactly what they're supposed to do um and you know this is this is interesting because you know when I was getting married I was totally in flux I I didn't know what my positions were but I felt to go on the safe side that our vows should be egalitarian I just didn't feel right uh, neither of us felt right making uh, you know commitments on things that we didn't understand at the time and so and that's been very good I mean I I submit to to Jessica all the time I mean you know you can go through the day and it's like you know what? You have stronger conviction. You have more knowledge in this area. I'm going to defer to you on this. And I've never regretted that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, I don't have a whole lot of time left. And so I want to um, leave the discussion on women elders and begin to talk a little bit about fallout, if that's okay with you. How how have your cases for female deacons and for female elders been received by those in the circles in which you travel, in particular your Reformed peers? And the reason I ask this is because if I remember correctly, you were in pretty tight with and, – and maybe this was a misconception on my part, but it seemed like you were in pretty tight with the Dr. James White Alpha and Omega Ministries crowd, uh, a man in a ministry that I'm a huge fan of. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine that your change of mind has gone over well in those kinds of circles. So, so how has your change of mind been um, received? Well, I guess uh, to some degree, I don't know. Um, nobody has ever really contacted me about it. Hmm. I mean, you're frankly, you know, one of the first people in the last <laughs> three years, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a shock. It's like do an entire huge interview on the subject when I haven't, you know, really talked about a lot of people. So it was, it was uh, you know, interesting. But uh, so, you know, as far as I know, there frankly hasn't been much of, uh, you know, fallout as it were. And that's, uh, I think, partly because 
there are now so many stories like my own. Uh, there's actually a really good book on this of uh, just stories of changing position on this called How I Changed My Mind About Women in Leadership. It's a good, good little book and interesting. But you know, in, in, in the bigger picture of things and in the, the bigger uh, historical flow of things, uh, yeah, I, I really have to agree with uh, one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bovink, who said in 1928, the soul of the woman has awoken and no power in this world will bring it back to its former state of unconsciousness. <laughs> and I, it, it's just... It, Interesting, you know, women have gained their liberty in almost every area of society in the last couple centuries, from education uh, to business to work to private property, uh, various civil laws, um, the right to vote, which is shockingly, shockingly, you know, less than a hundred years ago. And I think all this is is generally good. I think it's uh, you know counterproductive to try and, and hold on to this half-hearted view where women can you know do anything given their biology, except, you know, have a title or teach Sunday mornings or mm. whatever you mean. I mean, look at Beth Moore and, uh, you know, Craig Blomberg's uh, views, for example. It's, it's just kind of amazing to me that they hold on to these formalities, uh, you know, requiring that women have the approval of a, of a male elder board or something before, you know, a female teacher teaches. Because uh, in the end, the, the, act, the, the activity itself isn't is any different you know what i mean yeah and so i, I think women women in ministry is is just on the rise and will continue to be and i honestly i'm just amazed that uh you know something is incoherent and, and really sexist as complementarianism uh has lasted as long as it has you know 40 50 years or whatever but that's why threats of employment termination and coercive techniques have to be used it's to keep the system alive and uh you know it's kind of like government if the federal government didn't threaten people with an army and imprisonment and it couldn't extract taxes to pay for itself and the whole thing would collapse. Now, maybe that, maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing, you know, but the same is true for ideologies. If seminaries and denominations didn't force people to be anti-women in ministry, I think that whole system would collapse much more quickly. And, yeah. and you know, a great example is the, the Southern Baptist Convention changing their statement of faith in the year 2000 to be complementarian. You know, that just, uh, you know, it, so anyway, yeah, it's just uh, quite an issue. But, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to be part of a church uh, where my pastor is PCA minister and uh, PCA doesn't agree with women deacons or elders. And uh, if, if I remember right, I don't actually now that I think about it, maybe they do allow women deacons. But anyway, my pastor doesn't <laughs> doesn't agree with either of those. Mm. And he knows my position. But there's no sense of, you know, you're you're going to cause harm to the church or something. He still asks me to preach from the pulpit on Sundays because yeah. he knows I'm not going to cause. I mean, I'm a Baptist, you know, and uh, in, in the Presbyterian Church, and you know, I just don't cause trouble. Yeah, you know, and uh, so, so people realize that, and uh, so it really hasn't been to, too big of a deal yet. But yes. after this interview, if I lose. <laughs> You know, everything, uh, my house, my family, and my job and everything else, it's, it's your fault, Chris. So just, just let Yeah, me know. sure. Well, hey, you agreed to do the interview. Um, <laughs> it, it, in all seriousness, though, um, I mean, yeah, we, we can be kind of jovial about that. But the reality is, is as, as my mind has changed on this topic, as, as I've gone from being really convinced of complementarianism and speaking out in, in favor of it to being on the fence where I'm at now, it's really been emotional for me because on the one hand, um, I am 
uh, it is very important to me. I'm very passionately committed to the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, although like you, I probably have a little bit of nuanced view of inerrancy. Um, and, and you know, that's true even though I also recognize how important it is that I lean upon the gifted Christians that have come before me and, and to do Scripture in community and not all by myself. Um, but, but either way, I'm, I'm committed to following where Scripture leads and I'm passionate about that. But on the other hand, that's really difficult for me emotionally on this topic because the thought of losing the fellowship and the support of brothers and sisters that I cherish really terrifies me. I, I've already gone through that um, for different reasons, uh, different theological yeah. issues. And so I find myself almost wanting not even to continue researching this topic and just to oh, sort yeah. of be content to sit on the fence. Um, do you have any words of encouragement based on your own experience that you might be able to offer to people like me? That's what, – what, what a what – a, uh... What an excellent topic. I mean, we can talk about this for so long, but um, <laughs> I, I, I really, I could do a podcast because, you know, like I alluded to earlier, you know, I, I didn't know how I was uh, sort of part of, uh, to, to use crass terms, an oppressive regime, <laughs> you know, until stepping outside of it and realizing, oh my goodness, I'm a target now. Mm. Uh, and all I want to do is see the proclamation of the gospel, you know, it's a, it's it's sort of a, a twilight zone um, in in a lot of ways, but um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, there are so many uh, closet uh, you know egalitarians, and, and by egalitarians, I don't mean that in the neo Marxist sense, of course. I just mean you know Christians and evangelical feminism and stuff like that. Um, so many uh, hiding and uh, that would come out, but they would they would lose so much, so yeah. much, and the. Uh, Political enterprise and the the powers that be have a, a tremendous uh, influence. And um, you know, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the only place at my workplace, uh, only person I mean at my workplace that uh, has the views I do. And so uh, you know that can be challenging. Uh, but fortunately, uh, this institution is non-denominational; doesn't require you know views on these types of things. But the best thing is we you know we have an ac- uh, academic uh, freedom statement. Which a lot of Christian institutions don't have. Hmm. Uh, I have several friends in in Christian institutions who are utterly they're they're waiting for the letter. They're waiting for the letter uh, to lose their job because of their views on this. And I think this is just like an unspoken topic that needs so much more discussion because it is it is so unchristlike the way that things are handled. I, I would encourage people to read about the way Albert Moeller handled things in the 1990s uh, at Southern Baptist Seminary uh, in the book uh, by Julie Ingersoll called, uh, oh, good heavens, what is it, uh, e- Evangelical Women or something like that. She has a whole chapter, and it's a, it's a dissertation in, on sociology and, and just studies uh, just just the fear tactics and, and all of these things. And so I, I really understand. Although, you know, Chris, I wonder about you because uh, – you know, as you said, you've changed your views, like like the hell issue or whatever. And mm. I haven't I haven't read on it, and I'm I'm open for persuasion. I have no <laughs> to grind at all, you know, for for all I care. But um, so it's probably easier for you, at least, um, you know. And uh, but for other people who, you know, it, it's it's very rare. Um, it's it's very difficult. So, um, I guess encouragement. Um, like I don't know. It's it's I don't know everybody's situation, but um, people will never. You know, I don't think a, a real Christian is going to ever be ashamed of holding on to what they think is true. Right. 
And um, now that doesn't mean that you just say whatever you want to say. Uh, you know, got to be a sly as serpents, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and and that's there's ethical issues too. You know, I mean, uh, I'll be honest with you. I I I did not tell people the title of my doctoral dissertation, uh, re- really for over a year, and I still really don't, unless people ask about it. And, you know, when some people found out about it, they nearly soiled themselves. They're like, you got to be kidding. You wrote this? And, uh, you know, it's it's like some big deal. And and so, um, I don't know, words of encouragement, I just think, um, I, I think it's, it's uh, you know, find what's been encouraging to me, Chris, is it really is, is, is Christians for Biblical Equality, is a community of people of largely former, you know, patriarchalists and, and complementarians who they're going through the same trials and uh, going through the same experiences. And it's just really encouraging to see other people uh, in the same situation. You can pray for one another and, and just join hands like that. So um, I think, you know, I really, I, I, the organization is great. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really been, been good for me and um, the people there are just really wonderful. And um, I'm just uh, amazed at, at how much, you know, we have in common. And, uh, so anyway, I, I don't know if that helps you at all it, or but, it does. Uh, where, where can we go to find out about CBE and, and, and maybe well, get connected with them? Well, um, <laughs> let me pull up my browser and make sure <laughs> I get the, uh, well, I'll tell you what, right. while you're CB, CBE international.org is what it is. All one word, no hyphen or anything. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah, great materials and, and good stuff. And, it's just so encouraging because we're seeing the proclamation of the gospel. We're seeing the rise of Christian churches in other countries because of the results of encouraging women to use their gifts, to go preach, to plant churches, to nourish churches. And you can't say that about, you know, uh, other organizations. Mm-hmm. They, they have to play these games like, well, I guess you can be a missionary for a while, but after you plant this church— we have to have a man, a man run it, which yeah. of course isn't ironic because supposedly men are supposed to do the initiating and, and women the nurturing. And so that's completely turned upside down in complementarianism uh, with the church planning thing. But uh, anyway, so that's, yeah, that's, that's the website uh, there. I'll make sure to include a link uh, to that in the show notes as I will anything else that you want to give me here in a moment. But before I ask you for um, you know, the work that you've done and how our listeners can, uh, can get their hands on those things, one of the things I like to do with, with virtually all of my guests is give them an opportunity to share a, a parting message of sorts. You know, with, with an with a interview that's gone on for nearly two hours like this, uh, um, most people, unless they go back and listen to it multiple times, are not going to remember everything. Um, and, and so if there was one thing that you wanted listeners to go away remembering after a first listen to this interview, whether it be, com- you know, firm complementarians you'd like to reach out to or whether it be just the Christian community as a whole or whomever – uh, is, is there any sort of parting words that you'd like to share uh, before we begin to wrap things up? Yeah, I, I'm I'm not going to try and give one thought, I guess. I, I hate <laughs> reductionism, but um, um, just I guess don't be discouraged and and don't don't dismiss um, you know views you you disagree with. Uh, that's that's uh, always the temptation is um, you know there's there's just as you said there's fear involvement not just in the and the sociological aspects and the communal and relational aspects, but just in the internal aspects, like, 
um, you know, oh my goodness, I, uh, this is part of my theological identity and Christian identity, and I'm afraid to change what, what might happen. Maybe I'll change again. Who knows? You know, but, but as I, that's why I brought that, that up in the, in the whole combination thing is it's like change should be the default. I mean, if we're really, you know, constantly, uh, reforming ourselves to, to revelation and to God and, 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 and to truth. And so, um, I would just encourage, uh, folks to, um, just not to give up in studying. And, um, uh, you know, there, there are, it, I, let me just give a few book titles I would like to, and then they're, they're not mine. Um, really there's, there's three books uh, that have really helped me and they may not help, help everybody that's listening, but Rebecca Grotheis is a great, great, uh, place. Um, her women caught in the conflict is, is very good in, in her other book as well. And they're very underrated and easily dismissed. And that's precisely because they are so effective. <laughs> and, um, Origins of Difference by Elaine Storkey uh, is an excellent volume. Um, and the, these aren't just like hard hitting, you know, exegetical stuff. It's, it's stepping back and looking at the whole picture. And, uh, cause that can really help. And, uh, you know, doing theology and revising our ideologies is, is is a circle, you know, zooming in, zooming out, and you have to see the parts within the whole and everything else. So, um, yeah, I guess I would just hope that uh, people would would reconsider, you know, their perspectives if they're, if they're very skeptical. I'm not a, a perfect person, and everything I said on here, I'm sure there's plenty of mistakes and, and some things that just weren't true. You know, I'm a human being, so... Um, you know, don't take my word for it. Just uh, you know, check check things out yourself. You know, I've often said that when we're uh, when we're raised and glorified and 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 we're we're given access to knowledge that we didn't have now, the question isn't going to be who was right and who was wrong, but how wrong were each of us. I mean, you said something mm. uh, really there you go. powerful earlier, which is that mm. um, you were sure that there's some areas in your thinking that are wrong, and and I'm sure of that when it comes to myself as well. So hopefully, yeah, I, I'll I'll echo your sentiments um, there in closing. And uh, besides your author page at Amazon, and and um, besides the resources you already mentioned, including CBE International. Are, how, what are the names of the, the works that our listeners could check out that you've done, um, and how can they get their hands on them? Well, I guess for, for recent material I've produced on the subject, um, uh, The Evolution of Complementarian Exegesis uh, is an essay for Priscilla Papers. Uh, I was actually asked to present that at the national uh, meeting at Evangelical Theological Society, so, um, which should be interesting. You know, uh, probably have Wayne Grudem and uh, Douglas Moose sitting in the front row and uh, <laughs> reading the paper. <laughs> so that'll be a good time. And um, uh, the uh, translating authenteo in First uh, Timothy two twelve, also for Priscilla Papers, um, revisiting uh, authenteo in First Timothy two twelve for the the journal for the study of Paul and his letters. That's a little bit more technical. Uh, not for everybody, but, um, you know, my book on deacons, um, and, uh, I think I have three blog posts now, uh, on, on the CBE scroll. Uh, what else? Um, is your, is your doctorate, doctoral dissertation going to be published uh, at any time? No, I'm not going to publish it. I I, I thought about it, but it's, it's just not, it's not original or good enough, you know, to really merit that kind of what I what I'm going to do instead is is uh, revise the chapters, and uh, at least I'm, I'm planning to, and and publish them in journal articles, and then probably later down the road reassemble them into a volume. Mm. 
So, but that's going to take a while. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people got to realize, you know, dissertations are they're 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 very 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 rarely the the uh, you know the capitu- the um, the culmination of uh, a person's scholarly endeavors, you know. It's almost like it's, just the beginning, right? It, it, well, it is just the beginning, and that's the whole point. Is you know just to show that you can do scholarship. That's it, you know. And so um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, people can people can read it, but reading a doctoral dissertation is rarely fun. So I. Not sure I'd even encourage uh, a lot of people to do that necessarily, but uh, so and then and then uh, I just remembered I did uh, I presented uh, a couple um, papers uh, at the Society of Biblical Literature and American Academy of Religion conference at Luther Seminary and then at Creighton University in Omaha, and these are on these topics too. Uh, problem is that stuff is not not publicly available yet, um, so I. I guess I don't know what to say because I'm not sure how those are going to turn out, but uh, eventually they'll be they'll be public anyway. So, and then there's a uh, I spoke at a, uh, a conference in Toronto on um, on gender more broadly and did a a PowerPoint presentation. And uh, these are the types of things I want to get on a personal website years down the road, you know, mm-hmm. so people can download. But um, you know, I guess they can contact me and I can send it to them or I can host it. But uh, so. I, you know, I was just going to ask you that question. If if there's a way you don't mind listeners reaching out to you, how would you recommend that they go about doing so? Well, like I said, uh, you know, um, Google uh, Plus and LinkedIn. Um, and if they want anything else, Chris, people can just contact their local NSA agent because they're recording everything. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Jamin, you know, I've really appreciated your time, and um, I hope that uh, we'll stay in touch and, and maybe um, talk about other topics in the future. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed the interview, and if you know anybody who'd like to debate this issue, I'd love to have them on the show. So shoot me an email at chris at theapologetics.com. Otherwise, I hope that you'll join me for another episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then... Mm-hmm.